Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. If you're ready for the Word of God, put your hands together this morning. If you're ready, hear what God has to say to us this morning. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Matthew chapter 9, verses Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38. Um, and I'll, I'll, begin, I'll begin reading. It says this. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease in every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant. The harvest is abundant, but the workers or the laborers are few. Therefore, Don't just stand back, do something. Pray to the Lord of the harvest for to send out workers into his harvest. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again today, God. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you, God, that you are an amazing God, that you are an incredible God, that we have this awesome opportunity to worship on today. And so, Father, my prayer today is that your people don't just hear my words, but they hear from you, Lord. I pray today, God, that Christ would be glorified through our time together. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us as we study, that you would speak clearly to us, God, that you would convict our hearts, God, that you would encourage us to move forward in in our journey with you. And, And so, Father, I pray today that you would silence all of the noise and the chatter and the distractions that we may have going on in our hearts, God. I pray that you would tune the noise down, God, so that we can hear exactly what you want to say in our lives, so so that we would not just hear it, but that we would have the heart and the capacity to respond to it, Father. And so, Lord, I pray in advance, God, that you would bless not just the hearers of your word, but I pray, God, that you would also bless the doers of your word. And so, Father, I thank you, I praise you, I bless you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, Amen. You may be seated. My sermon title today is, There is Work to Do. There is Work to Do. You've you've heard me say this many times, that it is is a privilege to be saved, that that we do not deserve to be saved, but, but our salvation is a free gift of God. It is a 
it is a fact and a truth that, that we are saved only because of, of God's grace. That we should look at our lives and see our inability to save ourselves. That, that we should look at our lives knowing our own story, where, where we've come from, the, the journey that we've had, the difficulty of life, and we should realize that it is only by the grace and the mercy of God that our plight and our predicament is not worse than it already is. It, it is by sheer grace that, that we are saved, that God loved you and I enough to come in and save us from our sins. But, but here's what I said many times on many occasions, that God saves us and then God brings us into the family of God. God brings us into a life with him. God saves us, but God doesn't just save us to save us. God saves us and then God gives us a God-given responsibility, that, that God saves us and he makes us new. We, we are born again, recreated in the image of God. P Paul said it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul said, for we are his workmanship. That, that means we are God's masterpiece. For, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. And what is that purpose? Ephesians 2 and 10 tells us he created us for good works, which God prepared ahead of us uh, for, for us to do. He had prepared it in advance of saving us what we would do after we got saved. God created us and recreated us in his image. We are his workmanship and he created us for good works that would ultimately and eventually glorify him. And, and so the beauty of being in a relationship with Christ is that he brings us in and he already makes provision and plans for us. He, he didn't save us and try to figure out and guess what's next for our lives. He he made a plan for us ahead of time regarding what we would do with our lives. We won't have to go searching elsewhere or searching for somebody else to tell us and give us some meaning and significance for life. God has already done that as a byproduct of us being in a relationship with him. And out of the gratitude that we have for God, having saved undeserving sinners like you and I, we gladly and naturally, because of the new birth, go tell others about what God has done for us. That is God's plan. For, for him to save us, recreate us in his image for good works. And then part of that good works is for us to go and tell other people about what God has done for us. And so th this is the plan. No matter where we find ourselves, we are to go out and share the news that love has chased us down and has fulfilled us and satisfied us in ways that we could have never found anywhere else. And that love has come in a relationship with a person named Jesus. And so we call this telling, this sharing, we call this evangelism. And what we have today here is a great evangelistic text that aligns with other evangelistic texts, namely Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, which is called the Great Commission, where Jesus said these, this key word, go. He says, go and make disciples, not just of people that look like you, but make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here's what he says, then teach them to observe everything that I commanded you. And remember, here's the precious promise of evangelism. Here's a pre precious promise of sharing our faith. God says, even if you're timid, even if you're an introvert, even if you're scared, he says, I am always with you. You don't have to do this by yourself.
that, that's beautiful that God says that, that, that I am with you on the assignment that I have given you. My, my hand is on you. I am with you to do what I called you to do. But, but notice that he tells them in the Great Commission to go. He, he doesn't tell them to sit still. He doesn't tell them to just show up to church, catch the message, catch a little worship, and, and then be out of here. He doesn't tell them this. He, he says, I want you to take what you learned, and I want you to go. I want you to go tell other people what has happened to you, what has changed you, and then teach them all of the things that I've taught you. It, it's kind of like what, what, what Jesus said in John's gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 21, and Jesus said to his disciples, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. That, that, that there, is no, there is no sitting still and keeping silent and doing nothing in the kingdom of God. That God has given us this responsibility to share our faith with other people. And so evangelism is simply this. It is sharing news. It is being faithful to God by presenting the good news that Christ, by his death and resurrection, has secured a way for, for a holy God and a sinful people to be reconciled to each other. That, that we share the good news and trust God to do the work of converting people. Your concern in sharing is rejection. Your, your concern in sharing is that your sharing won't result in somebody being changed. God didn't tell you to go out and share and you change the person. God says, that's my job to change them. You just share the good news. You put the food on the plate in front of them and let them decide how they're going to eat. That's my responsibility. At some point, they'll get hungry enough and they'll start eating. And so evangelism is just sharing the good news and trusting God to convert people because ultimately we know that salvation comes from God. And our ultimate motivation in sharing our faith in evangelizing is to see God glorified. God is glorified when God and the truth about him is made known. And the truth about him is made known. And this is not just an activity that we do at the church, but it is a means of grace in which we as believers grow in Christ. It is our primary ministry to the world. Our primary ministry to the world as followers of Jesus is to go out and tell people the good news. It is to evangelize. Well, how do, how do, how do we do this? What's the practical nature of this? We sow the threads of the gospel into the fabric of our day-to-day -day lives in the conversations we have and the actions that we take. We sew the threads of the gospel into the fabric of our day-to-day -day lives in the conversations we have and in the actions that we take. We tell other people this good news about what Jesus has done to save sinners like us, calling people to repentance to calling people to repent of their sins, to turn away from their wicked life, turn away from sin, and believe or trust in Jesus. Notice when John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's preparing the way for Jesus, John's message is a message of repentance. It's a message of telling people to turn from their ways. When Jesus begins his ministry, you see the first sermon Jesus preaches, Jesus is telling people, it says, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repentance is a part of sharing. I know what you're saying. Who, who am I to tell anybody anything? You don't know my life. You, don't, you know the church, you mean. You don't know the real me. 
who, who am I? To, I'm shy. I'm an introvert. But well, one theologian says this, being an extrovert isn't essential to evangelism. Obedience and love are. This is what it means to live on mission, that you sow the threads of the gospel in your everyday life, in the conversations that you have, and in the actions that you take. You know that at your job, what you're doing is evangelizing by the way you work, by the way you show up on time, by the way you do your best to be the best employer at your job, by the way you manage your finances with the kingdom first in mind, the way you are in your relationship with your family, the way you put your other's interests ahead of your own, the way you are with your church family, where you come not to take and consume stuff, but you come to give your life to other people. This is how we live out the gospel, but in that there is a proclamation element where we tell people the good news about Jesus. And, and, and so we see this even in the story uh, in, in the book of Acts where Peter and John have every reason to be fearful of their lives for sharing this good news, but they do it with boldness. And we see a story in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, where, where, where Peter and John say this to the Jewish leaders who, who they could actually fear for their lives that something could happen to them. They say, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, that's for you to decide. That's your business. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. He says they're unable to stop speaking about it. The news was so good they couldn't stop telling people and I'm wondering why is it the news that good to us and the only conclusion that I could come to is that we have not accepted and embraced the good news which means that that's not a part of our life or we don't understand the good news because we don't first know the bad news and so what you need to know is that, that we don't go at this alone. We don't do it by ourselves. We have the Holy Spirit that empowers and enables us to do effective ministry. We go out as spirit-filled people that are filled with love, grace, boldness, and truth. Remember what Jesus said uh, to them in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He told the disciples, yo, 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 don't, don't go anywhere yet. Don't, don't go anywhere. I'm going to give you this assignment. You're going to go take the gospel to the nations. You're going to teach them. You're going to baptize them. I'm with you, but, but I got to leave first. And so here's what I'm going to do for you. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, here's what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. We don't do it on our own, but we do it with the Spirit of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. Spirit, help me to share. I'm scared. Man, I don't want to talk to my coworkers because, you know, I don't want them to think anything about me. I'm, I'm kind of scared. I'm an introvert. I don't want to talk to this person at this drive-thru. I mean, it's kind of weird, right? I'm just concerned they put enough ketchup in there for my fries. I don't want to do this, man. I just... I don't want to share my faith with this waiter. I'm looking at this waiter. They don't want to be here. Attitude is a little off. They seem a little broken. And I know this bad news for them, but I got some good news. But I don't really want to share it because I might have to send my food back. And I don't really know how that's going to work out for me. And so I'm a little fearful, but, but you have, Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, give me the bonus. Holy Spirit, tell me what to say to this person. Holy Spirit, give me the love, the grace, the truth, the boldness to speak to this person because I know this is not something that is optional for me to do. This is my responsibility as a believer. 
This is my God-given assignment to do. And the beautiful thing is, is we experience more of the Spirit's power and presence in our lives as we do what God has told us to do. Sometimes we're not experiencing the Spirit's power and presence in our lives because we ain't doing things that God told us to do. Therefore, God don't need to be intervening into our lives. Oh, I want the Holy Spirit on me. Well, do something that, the whole, that requires the Holy Spirit. Do something that requires the Spirit helping you to do what God told you to do. So this ministry that God has given us is not something new. We are essentially continuing the ministry of Jesus. And I think studying his ministry model is the greatest thing that we can do if we want to glorify God, testifying to his goodness in a lost and dark world. And also, if we truly want to take on the perspective and the heart that Christ has for the lost. And so what we'll do now is we'll look at a few things. We'll look at the ministry of Jesus. We're going to look at the heart of Jesus. And then we're going to look at the call of Jesus to the church. We're going to look at the ministry of Jesus, then the heart of Jesus, then the call of Jesus to the church. And so at this juncture, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, the crowds are following him. This is prior to him sending out his disciples. And just to give you a little brief recap, in case you don't know how bad Jesus is, if you hadn't been studying the Bible reading plan, I want to show you how how. How, how, how sick with it Jesus is. Like Jesus is cold out here. Je- Jesus is not playing in any games out here. We, we see Matthew chapter 4. We go back to Matthew chapter 4 after we have the, the birth narrative of Jesus in Matthew 1. You got the genealogy in Matthew 2, of course, the birth of Jesus. And you see Matthew, uh, Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist in the wilderness. And you get the uh, Matthew chapter 4 and Jesus is being, uh, th- it says the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. It says the spirit led Jesus to be tempted by Satan. It, it wasn't like Jesus had bad cell reception and the Google Maps thing wasn't working on his phone and he ended up getting off the wrong exit because the thing had updated to the construction that was going on on I-4. It, it, it wasn't that. It, 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 Jesus, the spirit literally led him there to be tempted. J- Jesus overcomes this temptation. He overcomes his temptation and then once he overcomes the temptation, we see his ministry begin in Galilee and Jesus is starting to preach about repentance and the kingdom uh, uh, the kingdom being there. And then you see Jesus calling his first disciples, Simon and Andrew, and he tells them, it, the clue for us is what, do he tell, what he tells the first disciples. He tells them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you fishers of men, which means I'm going to go out and make you grab other people and bring them into the kingdom. That's our our, our assignment. And and then as we see, uh, the crowds are growing as Jesus is teaching this message of repentance. And then we get to Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus uh, from 5 through 7 preaches the greatest, coldest sermon that's ever been preached before called the Sermon on the Mount. And, And he's schooling and taking shop on the Mount. This is where he tells them that they are salt. Uh, that they are the, the salt of the earth. He tells them that they are, they are, they are light, that they are, are light that, that can't be hidden. He tells them this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preaches from 5 to 7. He comes down from the mountain. And as soon as he comes down from the mountain, in chapter 8, you see a man comes for Jesus to heal him, a, a, a man with leprosy, and Jesus heals his man with leprosy. Subsequently, we see Jesus heal the centurion servant. You've heard that story before about the centurion servant. Then Jesus goes and takes one of his disciples, homeboy, his disciples, uh, uh, Peter, he heals his mother-in-law. And then after he does that, Jesus is cold on a boat, cold-blooded on a boat, sleep. 
calls and makes the winds and the seas obey at his command. He then casts out some demons. He heals a paralytic. He calls another disciple, this despicable tax collector. Uh, uh, then you see him uh, have this exchange with a woman with the issue of blood. At the same time, somebody's telling them that their daughter is dead at the house. Jesus heals a woman with the issue of blood and then goes and heals a little girl at the house. I'm just trying to tell you how bad Jesus is. I'm just trying to tell you that he's a cold-blooded dude. Once he does that, then two blind men come to Jesus. Jesus gives the blind people the sight. Then some demons come. Jesus casts out some demons. And he continues to do this in his ministry. And he's observing the crowds that are following him. And here's where we get to verse 35. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness and the first thing that we see is that Jesus is not sitting around waiting for people to come to him rather God in the flesh is going out and encountering encountering people right where they are and so this is what we see Jesus continually doing throughout his ministry that we see God initiating salvation we see God going to where the people are he loved people enough to go and not wait for them to come and that's how we have to be as a church. But we don't wait for people to come. I hope some people show up to church today. No, we go out. We go and intersect with right, right where people are. And Jesus shows us this because Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And the synagogue is the place, the place where the Jews pray and study the law of God. It was the center of Jewish life. Jesus goes up and posts up in the synagogue slash Starbucks in Jerusalem. Jesus posted up at the Panera right there on the block. Jesus posted up right there. Wherever you go to brunch, he's right there. He's right there at first watch. Jesus is right. If you're on a budget, Jesus is right there at Denny's or at the IHOP. He's right there. Jesus is right where the people, where the people are, and he's teaching. Because if there is no teaching, then there won't be any understanding. People must understand. He's teaching them. I'm sure he's teaching them from the Old Testament law how the Messiah will come and suffer and letting them know, hey, I'm, I'm, gonna be the, I'm that dude that, that the Old Testament is talking about. And then it says he goes from teaching to preaching the good news of the kingdom, which, which preaching and teaching is different. Teaching is actually teaching, and preaching is proclaiming something, setting forth a certain number of facts and letting people decide whether they want to deal with it or not. He, he's proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come, and we must teach people the good news of the kingdom. But we first must explain why it is good news by telling them that there is some dreadful, terrible, and bad news. And the bad news is that we've all broke God's law. The Bible calls that sin. And the scriptures tell us, I'm giving you evangelism one-on-one, and the scriptures tell us that, we, that, that we've all sinned and falling short of the glory of God. That, that's the bad news. The scriptures also tells us that the wages of that sin, of breaking God's law, the wages of that is death. I'm, I'm, touch, I'm taking you straight through the process. The wages of sin is death. And, and, and our sin, it makes us enemies with God and subject to his wrath and his judgment. That, that is the bad news. The bad news is that we are not good with God, that there is no neutral relationship with the king, that, that we are at odds with him, that, 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 that our sin has put this chasm between us and God, and his judgment and his wrath is breathing down our necks no matter how much good works we do. 
Th- that's the bad news, that we are, we are headed, uh, headed for death, for, for eternal death. Th- that is the bad news. But the good news is that in spite of our sin, God was willing to come to us. That's the good news. The good news is that God, through Christ his son, has come to rescue us from our sin by conquering our greatest nemesis, sin and death, defeating them on the cross, dying the death we deserve to die, and being resurrected from the grave, proving that his death was sufficient to pay the penalty of our sins, making forgiveness and eternal life the free gift of God available to all that will put their trust in him. That is the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the kingdom that has been set in motion by Christ. When he came to earth, he's not just to be our redeemer, but he is our king, the one who rules and reigns over the lives of his people, whose allegiance is to him and his kingdom above all other allegiances. And we as citizens bear witness to the kingdom in our jobs, in our families, in our churches, in our finances. The kingdom has come and the kingdom will one day be brought to completion when Christ returns. That's the good news of the kingdom, that we were, we were in spiritual darkness, that, that we were dead, and Christ has come to make us alive in him. That is the good news, that there is a way out, that there is a way to eternal life, that death does not have to be final for us. That is the good news, and Jesus is teaching and preaching this, but Jesus' ministry was not just one of words, it was also one of deeds. It says that he healed, he went about healing every disease and every sickness. His teaching, his preaching is accompanied by his actions. His healing is proof. It is proof that he is the son of God. When you see miracles, Jesus is just not doing that to entertain us. Jesus' idea in mind of healing wasn't that we can go around and have a bunch of healing services so we can raise a bunch of offerings. Where people can be mesmerized by the supernatural. But Jesus healing people is authenticating who he said that he was. And so we tend to think of Jesus, of the miracles that that Jesus did as interruptions of the natural order. Oh, man, that's supernatural. Oh, my God. I can't believe he healed that thing. I can't believe that this thing grew back. I can't believe that this thing is gone or this sickness or this disease is gone. But, But let me give you a different perspective on God's miracles in the natural order. German theologian Jürgen Maltman said this, miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. We are so used to a fallen world that sickness, disease, pain, and death seem natural. In fact, they are the interruption. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. And see, what we see in Jesus' miracles is him restoring the way things are supposed to be. And so we should not just see Jesus, these healings, as Jesus healing some physical bodies, but we should see these healings as comprehensive. Jesus is bringing wholeness to broken humanity, not healing with the sole purpose of people having better health and wealth, but rather healing them with the primary purpose of dealing with their real sickness, which is sin. And so what what kind of God would be okay to heal your body, but let your soul perish? God is more concerned with healing your heart more than he is concerned with healing your hand. And so what we'll look at now 
We saw the ministry of Christ. Now we'll see the heart of Christ. What drives his ministry? Verse 36 says this. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. I would underline that in my Bible. He felt compassion for them. Why? Because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw that people were following him and listening to him speak, or or that even they had a working knowledge of who he was, but they were not committed to him. He, he, He saw people following him, just like today in churches, we see people listening to the sermons, hearing the message, going to church, doing the thing, but not really committed with every area of their life. He saw the brokenness of the world that he came into, and he describes what he saw as distressed and dejected people. People who are distressed and dejected. People who are filled with anxiety, sorrow, pain, depression, disheartened by life. They are helpless. They cannot help themselves. They have the inability to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and do something about their own plight. He saw them as distressed and dejected. People thinking that their answer to their problems were social answers, were political answers, were racial answers, but the root to it all was sin, and he came to fix the sin problem. And so he calls them people that were like sheep without a shepherd. The crazy thing is the people were looking for an earthly king and an advocate to push back against what they thought was political oppression. Now, maybe you've been under a rock this week. And if you've been in your prayer closet from the last time we were here and we met until today, then I want to alert you that some crazy stuff happened this week. How how would Jesus have seen the events of this past week? When what the the media incorrectly called protesters early on, when, when rioters, domestic terrorists, or shall I say thugs, forced their way into the Capitol building. Not on a day when people were off, but while people were there working. Doing their civic duty that they have been assigned and called and are paid to do on our behalf. And if there was ever a picture of sheep without a shepherd, it was what we witnessed as domestic terrorists invaded the nation's capital. Those were sheep without a shepherd. Those people who were traitors and insurrectionists in their own country. Those people who were lost people that were willing to risk their lives and banking their hope in a man and a system that could never give them what they were actually looking for. Screaming and shouting for freedom in a country which they in particular are more free than anybody else. If they are not free, then who the heck is free? Holding up signs that says Jesus saves while rebelling against the very institution that he instituted. If you don't believe me, read Romans 13 that tells us the authorities that exist are instituted by God. How are you going to rebel against the thing that he instituted holding up a sign talking about he saves? The hypocrisy of it all. And what we see there is idolatry taking precedence over theology. This was a clear and vivid picture of people distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. This weekend's events, Jesus would have seen the brokenness and sinfulness of the crowds. And here's where it got a little dicey for me. 
And he wouldn't have felt anger. He would have felt compassion. I wanted to take this part out of my sermon. So I was like, this, don't, this ain't going to go with the flow that I'm trying to go with, trying to get done for me. I need to get my stuff off right here. I need to let them know how I feel. But it says that he had compassion. When he saw the crowds and the brokenness in humanity, he felt it in his bowels, in his guts. He had pity. It was a visceral reaction to what he was seeing, that, that he felt this from his innermost being. He didn't look at him and like, that's a shame. But he, he was pained because of what he saw. Well, how could he be pained by what he saw? Because his passion, compassion comes from his love. His compassion comes from his love. And Christian mission starts with compassion that is rooted in the love of God. And this has to be our motivation. It has to be our motivation. It has to be the compassion of Christ that drives us once we get past our anger and once we get past our wanting to do some stuff. Once we get past that, we have to let the dust settle and say, okay, God, how do you want me to feel? And we see in the Gospels that Jesus is heartbroken over the crowds. He's having this gut-wrenching experience to see people so lost and broken, misguided, spiritually destitute, leaderless, in more danger than they thought they were. They needed a real leader. Talking about the people in the text. They needed a real leader that would free them not from some conspiracy theories, but they really needed freedom from the power of sin and death. A freedom that would open a way to eternal life for them. They didn't need political power, they needed Jesus. They needed God to rescue their hearts. They needed rescue from worshiping power and a president. They needed the king of kings, not a president. They needed one that would serve them as king and shepherd at the same time. And it's only one man that could do that. You think about this idea of a shepherd. Ezekiel points forward to the shepherd, which is Jesus. And here's what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 34, verses 11 through 16. He says this. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search and find my sheep. I will be like a shepherd looking for his scattered flock. I'll find my sheep and rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on that dark and cloudy day. I'll bring them back home to their own land of Israel from among the peoples and nations. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and by the rivers and all the places where they live, where people live. Yes, I will give them good pasture land on the hills of Israel. There, there they will lie down in the pleasant places and feed in the lush pastures of the hill. I myself will tend my sheep and give them a place to lie down in peace, says the sovereign Lord. I will search for my lost ones who strayed away and I will bring them safely home again. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the weak, but I will destroy those who are fat and powerful. I will feed them. Yes, feed them justice. And what we see is the good shepherd comes and rescues those that have been scattered and oppressed by the failure of the shepherds of Israel. People, leaders who put their own interests over the interests of the people that they were assigned to take care of. So after the dust settled and the range of emotions of anger, sadness, the realization of the hypocrisy of what we saw, after we have 
philosophically diagnose what was going on. We, as the people of God, have to ask ourselves, how does God see this and how should we process it? And we have to deal with this from God's eyes and know that these are lost people. These are people that Jesus would have went to and intersected right in the brokenness of their lives. If that is the ministry of Jesus, then that must be the ministry of you and I. It was only the Pharisees who saw people as people to be thrown away. But Jesus saw lost people as a harvest to be reaped and saved. Spirit-filled compassion moves a person past hostility, past indifference, past our comfort zone, past whatever we're feeling, and, and, and it drives us to the heart of Christ, and that heart of Christ does not drive sinners away. Remember what Jesus said earlier in Matthew chapter 9. He said, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. He says, for I did not come to save the righteous, but I came for the sinners. I came for the sinners. We read about Jesus calling Matthew, one of his disciples, that is a tax collector, selling out his own people for his own benefit and his own gain, one that would surely have been despised by his own countrymen. And Jesus calls him from that life, and Jesus goes to eat with him and others just like him. So let's just know this, that no one, even people we disagree with, and people that we loathe, no one is beyond the scope of salvation. If he could save you, he can save anybody. Jesus can even save a homegrown domestic terrorist. Pastor, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have no scripture for that. Allow me to present to you Exhibit A. Your Honor, I'd like to bring before the court to testify Tyreek St. Patrick. I'm sorry. I would like to bring forth Saul of Tarsus, who's complicit in the death of the first Christian martyr. I want to introduce you to this, this man, and I'm going to use his own tweets on the dark web against him about how he was going to storm the synagogues. Here's what he said in Acts 9 and 1, Your Honor. I want to present to you this. Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. A domestic terrorist who at some point Jesus comes and intersects in his life. Knocks him off his high horse. Changes his whole life. And when we get to Acts chapter 20, verse 24, that former domestic terrorist in Acts 20, 24 has this to say. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the Lord's, to the gospel of God's grace. No one is beyond the scope of salvation. So where does that leave us? My final point is the call of Christ to the church. Jesus states his obvious perspective, something that's obvious to him but maybe unknown to his disciples. And here's what he says. And he adds a command to it in verse 37 through 38. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant. I.e., there's a lot of lost people out there. But the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of a harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And we can see in our day and time that the harvest of souls 
is truly abundant. If last year and the beginning of this year has taught us anything, people need Jesus. I can't wait for 2021. Five days in, he says, hold my beer. we see brokenness right out the gate. People clamoring for a king and using the king of kings to prove the point of why they need another king. And up until this point in the story, Jesus has been doing all of the harvesting and reaping on his own. But Jesus in his humanity is limited in scope and time. And he says to his disciples, look, don't you see all of this brokenness? All of this death all around us? If this doesn't drive you to action, what will? The harvest is abundant, it's plentiful. Unfortunately, the laborers or the workers are few. We need less commentators and more committed people. The workers are few. Work, it inquires labor. When you, when you get into the kingdom, he says, no, no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is even fit. That God saves us and gives us assignment. And he didn't say it's going to be easy. It's actually going to be hard. That, that, that it entails work. It entails being uncomfortable. It entails sacrificing. It entails being inconvenienced. Dare I say it, inconvenience is a generation that's all about convenience. That, that, that there is work, there's things in your life that you have to give up to follow the call of Christ. There are people that, that you're going to make upset for doing the right thing. There are people that will be offended by you by, by saying and speaking the truth. But this is what he's called us to, to do this in grace and love and in truth. To go out and say, how, how can I be a light in the darkness? How, how can I be salt in the earth? How, how can I do these things? How, how can I fulfill the great commission? Why is my life all about me and my convenience? My money, my trips, my family, my activities, my leisures, my pleasures. This is all how our generation has trained us to think. But, but Paul says, I see my life of no value. This is what he calls us to. Paul said in 2 Timothy, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain salvation in Christ. I endure everything. If that means being uncomfortable, I'm willing to endure it. If that means pain, I'm willing to endure. If that means suffering for a season, then bring it on. Leave you with this perspective from Charles Spurgeon about our call to share the good news in the lost world. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. 
if hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertion. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. This should be our perspective. God has called us. The harvest is plenteous, but the labors are few. And he invites us to pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into this harvest. As a church, we should be praying. On our prayer board out there, somebody should go out there and write, send out workers into the harvest. This is what we should be praying for. This is what's important. It doesn't mean that we should do nothing but pray, but it does mean we should do nothing without praying about it. He is the Lord of the harvest, which means that they are his. And the beautiful thing is, is that he invites us on the journey by not telling us who he is are. But we depend on his strength, his power, and his guidance to do the work. And I'll leave you with this. Salvation is a free gift of God. But because of you and I, it is the gift that keeps on giving. Our assignment is to reap and pray. But the end goal is worship. The people would bow their knees, surrender their lives, and worship the King of Lord of Lords. Here's what to do. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.